Let's go ahead and turn to Psalm 2. Well, actually, I'm just, I'll go through this. These are some pictures. If you haven't seen the building, uh, that was it from the outside. It's, it's really a beautiful structure. It already looks like a museum to me. It's got a big skylight there in the lobby, bookstore, uh, concession, ticket area. That's all ready there. Uh, somebody's already donated some statues. You can kind of see back there in that corner um, to the right. Let's see. This is the bookstore area. Just beautiful, really. Uh, that's the theater itself. Right now it seats about 2,000 people. So we will, we've got a couple different floor plan options with that to either shrink that down a little bit and put the play area and the museum in there or add, you know, uh, 20,000 square foot to the side and leave more seats in the theater. So that's part of, it all has to do with how much money comes in and, uh, several variables there so we're just, we're just praying for wisdom on the best way to do that okay i think that's it so let's go ahead here and uh, psalm 2 uh, i'm going to just use that as a launching pad i guess to uh, present this principle of one nation under god and what exactly does that mean it's one of those phrases we throw around a lot and say but what does it mean to be one nation under God? And is that even possible? Um, Psalm 2. And I'm going to start here in verse number 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So you'll see as we go down through this psalm that it's directed at nations. And the word heathen there, if you look it up in the Hebrew, literally means Gentile nations. So you, you could say this. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people of these nations, imagine a vain thing. And vain just means it is worthless or fruitless. It's not productive. And, and it's almost like nations throughout all time have been set on doing things that just don't work. It's counterproductive. It, you know, it destroys the producers in their country and leads to corruption and chaos and problems. Why? That's the question, right? And uh, verse 2 says, the kings of these nations, the kings of the earth, set themselves. In other words, they are established in this. It's almost like they can't break out of this way of thinking. They set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. That's the idea that they're looking around and seeing what everybody else is doing. So, you know, they're going to go to the U.N. and have a vote and see how many other nations think it ought to be done this way or... Uh, how many other nations believe this way? And, and if there's a majority of nations that do it, then it must be right, right? And it's just that idea that we're going to uh, take a poll or a survey or, you know, well, everybody, every other nation's trying socialism, so why don't we kind of a thing? And that's, uh, uh, that's the way it's been for a long time. Keep in mind, this psalm was written 3,000 years ago, right? The kings of the earth set themselves and they take counsel together amongst themselves against two things. They're against the Lord and they're against his anointed. So the word Lord there is Jehovah, means the self-existent one, the creator. They're against the creator. Number two, they're against his anointed. So in the Old Testament, we know that is the same uh, word for Messiah, the anointed one. And you can see down in just a few more verses that we're talking about the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. So 
this really is the center of, I believe it's the center of this whole psalm. Because this psalm has to do with how nations treat Jehovah and Jesus. So you go on in verse number three and you see why they're against these two. They say, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Jehovah and his anointed one, Jesus Christ, have put bands on us, the world says, these kings say. In other words, they have restricted us. The word band there is a, a, a halter or a restraint. The word cord is a band, a rope, or something that entwines. So what they're saying is, God is limiting us. We can't do what we want to do. And if you really want to be happy, you've got to get rid of God. So that has been the world's attitude from the very beginning. And especially, you know, if you get to the beginning of civilizations with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel and move forward, that has been the story of kings. They're against Jehovah God and they're against Jesus Christ. And it's not that they're not religious because they've participated in plenty of religions and have lots of gods. But the kings of the earth are against these two in particular. So, and the reason is because they feel limited that God has already defined family. We don't get to define it. God said it's a man and a woman and they have children and that is a family. Uh, God's already defined uh, right and wrong in, in the sense of stealing and private property. God says there is private property and you need to buy and sell and trade honestly and you need to give a tenth of what you earn, you know, that profit that you get, that you receive. Uh, you give a tenth of that. You give your love offerings. You give your alms to those around you that are suffering and hurting and take care of your family first. And God's already defined these things. And then the world comes along and says, well, we don't like those definitions. And now we've gone so far as to say uh, the whole thing of male and female. We don't like God's definitions there. And we'll make up our own mind what we are. And it's just this wholesale casting off of God and his rules. So if there is no God, we don't have to feel conviction when somebody gets up and preaches the Bible. Or when somebody says there's a heaven and a hell and there's only one way to heaven and his name is Jesus. We don't have to feel convicted about that. We don't have to feel guilty about that. That's the idea anyway. I don't think it works. Because I've talked to a lot of people that got saved late in life and they said, man, I've been running from God my whole life. You know, they finally gave in. They finally accepted the truth. But I think just because you pretend he's not there doesn't change the facts at all. And it doesn't relieve any guilt in the human heart. So... That's been the struggle, though, all along. So notice God's response in verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. So Jehovah, the Lord, still sits on his throne. He's still in control. He laughs at what man is doing because man acts as if they teach the kids evolution and that everything came from a dot that exploded billions of years ago. That makes God non-existent. It doesn't, it doesn't make God non-existent. And so the Lord just looks at that and laughs. 
So, verse number 6 and 7 speak about the anointed one, Jesus. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. In other words, prophetically, he's saying Jesus is going to come and rule and reign from Zion or Jerusalem. And there's nothing the kings of the earth can do to stop it. Verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Jesus will be born. This was a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Jesus will be born and Jesus will come and rule and reign from Jerusalem. So whether that makes the kings of the earth mad or not doesn't change the facts. And remember Herod, the tyrant of that day, wanted to stop the birth of Jesus and couldn't do it. And there'll be plenty of tyrants following the Antichrist, the great tyrant, who will try to stop Jesus from ruling and reigning in Jerusalem and they won't be able to stop him either. But this is, you know what a nation is. It's a group of people, right? That's all it is. It's a group of people. They live together. Uh, they speak a common language and they're trying to get along. So uh, they have laws in which they try to be civilized. And there's 196 nations on the planet right now, if you count Taiwan. And that's up for debate right now with everything that's going on. Any one of those nations could read this psalm and benefit from it. God's, God doesn't favor Americans. This isn't, you know, white man's religion or uh, anything like that. These are just timeless Bible truths from the eternal word of God. And they would apply to any nation in Africa, Asia, some Pacific island somewhere. So notice what he says in verse uh, 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. I like this verse because it teaches us that just because you've always done it this way doesn't mean you have to keep doing it. Those verses in Proverbs that say, you know, pro, uh, wisdom is crying out to the simple. Come, let me teach you. Let me help you. You ever, you ever heard the phrase stuck on stupid? Uh, you don't have to be that. You could actually learn. You could actually improve your situation. Be wise now, therefore, and learn of me. Be instructed. And here's what you need to know, nations. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. As a nation... It could be your collective conscience that we're going to serve the Lord. Now, you can't force everyone to serve the Lord. So that's not what we're talking, you know, God didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. And no king can do it. No government can do it. You can't force people to serve Jesus. But you can have enough people that love the Lord in a, in a nation to say, hey, wait, wait, wait. Don't take the Lord's name in vain like that. We love the Lord. We teach our kids that he is real, that he will bless them, and that there is a God in heaven, and there is a creator that is the reason that we're all here breathing right now. We're created in his image. He knows us and loves us. And that's the only reason we're on this earth for 70 years, that we might seek him and feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So, again... Out of 196 nations, if any one of them would take that position that there is a creator in heaven and we're going to honor him. Serve 
the Lord in fear. Reverence. And then rejoice. That's what follows. You know, you're not going to have joy running from God. You're not going to find joy rejecting God, mocking God. You want joy? Serve God. Boy, I call it sweet surrender. It's that point where you finally just give up. You know, how long will you kick against the pricks? Okay, Lord, I give up. I surrender. I'm yours. That's when the joy comes. Amen? Amen. You're finally not fighting against God. Just surrender. And a nation that will collectively hold that position and just say, you know, we're sending our kids to youth camp. We're telling them there's a heaven and a hell. We're showing them that Jesus is the way and that God has a plan for their life and they're valuable and they didn't just explode out of some rock or cosmic soup somewhere. They are created in the image of God with gifts and talents and abilities and value. And as a nation, that's what we're going to tell our kids. That nation will have joy. Pastor mentioned it earlier, Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed, prosperous, happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. So then look at verse number 12. It addresses the Messiah, Jesus. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Come to Jesus. <laughs> I mean, don't reject him. Don't use his name as a curse word. Uh, honor him. Come to him. Thank him for dying on the cross for you. Blessed are those that will put their trust in him. That word blessed is opposite of vain. Back in verse 1 where it said it was empty and fruitless. This is fruitful. Now, I love to apply these on an individual basis because there's plenty of other verses that are directed at individuals that are very much like this. But this is directed at nations, right? Be wise, kings. You could lead your nation the right way if you would simply serve the Lord and trust Jesus. Your, your nation king would be blessed, would have joy. Is that even possible? I mean, you know, you got so many lost people and, and the world's just wicked. And typically, you know, when we look at government as some horrible, necessary evil that, you know, there's just no hope for. Is it possible that you could have a nation that acknowledges the creator and loves the Lord Jesus Christ? Apparently, that's the command. Well, who's going to win that battle? Who is going to win that battle within a nation? Who, who's going to decide we're going to be that kind of a nation? Obviously, it's got to start with God's people. It's got to start with people who are praying. It's got to be, start with people who understand these principles and aren't just fatalistic. Oh, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. There's nothing I can do about it. And, and, you know, the whole country's just falling to pieces and there's nothing you can do except here and watch it destroy itself. No, it's got to start with someone that understands. And 
is willing to be a voice. You know, as we influence those around, the only hope is if God's people can influence their community, that Bible preaching churches throughout that nation can proclaim the truth and reach other people, convert those hearts from the inside out, and turn those people toward the Lord. You know, Jesus said it's the truth that makes you free. And who's the pillar and ground of the truth? It's the church. It's us. So I just want to point out a few things now. We'll just kind of look at some of these quotes from uh, founders and, and others regarding this whole concept of, of that principle about Psalm 2, being a nation under God. And I'll start here with the first charter of Virginia. By the way, we've got books out there on the table. This one here in particular is great if you don't have it already, America's God and Country. That book is nothing but quotes about faith and prayer and the Lord Jesus Christ and, and moral behavior and freedom. And uh, that is an inspiration. We've got some other material there. Uh, but I love the quotes because that's history. That's the voice of people from the past. And we can see how they felt about this. But here's the first charter of Virginia, 1606. By the providence of Almighty God to the glory of his divine majesty in propagating of the Christian religion. And then it went on. This is part of their heart when they came. And I'm not saying that everyone that came understood all of this. And there certainly were people that were coming for gold and, and not uh, noble motives. But there were many in, in Jamestown, but also especially in Plymouth. And, and then the hordes of people that followed them were looking for religious freedom and looking to honor God in their nation as they felt led by the Holy Spirit according to the word. So, uh, you know, there's example after example of stuff like this. Uh, we could jump up to George Washington here. The indispensable man, that man that really allowed America to be born, humanly speaking. God used him. But he said it's impossible to account for the creation of the universe without the agency of a supreme being. So I'm just leaving it at that. There's lots and lots of quotes about George Washington and, and the creator and God and prayer and acknowledging God. It's the duty of nations to acknowledge God. All that stuff is there. But I just want to say, you know, we've got to start there. The acknowledgement uh, of the agency of a supreme being. And as I read Psalm 2 and I look at modern America, that really is the crux of the whole matter. Amen? Either there is a God in heaven. Somebody says, well, I, you know, you know um, talking about the, all, the, the loving uh, the same gender and, and all the transgender and things like that, and, and they love to use the love card, you know, you guys are so judgmental and you just don't love. Well, actually, I think a good answer is that the first commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind. That's the first commandment. The second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Get those in order, everything will fall into place. But you can't say I love my neighbor and I despise God for putting these moral boundaries on everything. That's not love either. Uh, it turns into lust and, and endorsing lustful behavior because you're violating the moral principles and laws that God, our founders called it the laws of nature and nature's God. And they believed that civil law within a nation should be in harmony with the laws of nature and nature's God. 
And it's not love to reject God and go to a person and endorse their behavior, whatever it is, against God's word. So it all comes back, is there a God or not? Somebody says, well, I think I ought to be able to love whoever I want and have a family that looks like anything that I want it to look like. And I would say, if there is no God, you're exactly right. If we're just the product of evolution and some explosion happened and we're just a bunch of particles flying through space with no purpose or meaning, have at it. But if there's a God in heaven, a creator, who already gave us the definitions of right and wrong, that changes everything. It really boils down to this. Is there a creator or not? And as a people, are we going to acknowledge him? God help us. You know, that's, it, it's amazing as I read through these quotes and I, and I understand the worldview of these guys. Because, you know, a lot of them don't, like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, we don't know that they ever got saved. I hope they did. Uh, uh, Franklin actually had a very good relationship with George Whitfield and, was, and, and uh, spoke highly of his preaching and heard the gospel clearly. And so maybe he did get saved. I don't know. Uh, the test, these were not perfect men by any means. But even somebody like Ben Franklin had a biblical worldview in the sense of acknowledging the creator. And he says here, it is, it is that particular wise and good God who is the author and owner of our system that I propose for the object of my praise and adoration since he has given us reason whereby we are capable of observing his wisdom in the creation. He is not above caring for us, but pleased with our praise and offended when we slight him or neglect his glory. Remember, it was Ben Franklin who stood up at the Constitutional Convention and said, we've got to pray. We prayed during the Revolutionary War. We forgot to pray during the writing of the Constitution. And they split up and prayed around Philadelphia for about three days, and they came back together and had a local preacher pray. And it changed the course of that whole meeting. People were starting to get mad and leave, and the whole thing was blowing apart. But after they prayed, they were able to work through those issues and put this thing together. That was Ben Franklin. And it came back to his acknowledging God the Creator. He said, freedom is not a gift bestowed upon us by other men, but a right that belongs to us by the laws of God and nature. It is the duty of mankind to acknowledge their dependence on the divine being, that Almighty God would mercifully interpose and still the rage of war among the nations, that he would take this province under his protection, confound the designs and defeat the attempts of its enemies, and unite our hearts. Boy, we need to pray that right now, don't we? God, destroy the, in the intents and the plans of the enemies of freedom and the enemies of God that are alive and well right now working. We need to pray for God's protection on this nation and for unity in our hearts. But you know, you can't unite unless you have something to unite around. And for these guys, it was the Creator. Uh, for our defense and security in this time of danger. John Witherspoon signed the declaration. He said, whoever is an avowed enemy of God, I scruple not to call him an enemy of his country. If you're going to blaspheme and reject God and mock God, you're no friend to this country. 
Thomas Jefferson, I have little doubt that the whole country will soon be rallied to the unity of our Creator and I hope to the pure doctrines of Jesus also. That's what we, that's the cause. The cause is religious freedom. The cause is the opportunity to preach according to our conscience and the Holy Spirit working in us and not have the state saying, you can't say that, you can't preach that. That's considered hate speech. That's in, uh, not, not uh, accepted. In fact, you know, if you say that too loud, we'll have to you know, sweep you off somewhere. Or as they say in China, you'll disappear. Or tortured, executed. That's, that's what these guys knew about. They knew all about tyranny and how that worked. And they were saying, look, if we're going to unite around something, it better be the creator and Jesus Christ. So here's a young nation trying to be born that's looking at Psalm 2 and saying, let's give it a try. We believe this. God, help us to see it happen here. And it'd be hard to argue that it didn't happen here. Alexander Hamilton, I've carefully examined the evidences of the Christian religion and I would unhesitatingly give my verdict in its favor. I can prove its truth as clearly as any proposition ever submitted to the mind of man. In my opinion, the present Constitution is the standard to which we are to cling. Let us uh, then uh, let an association be formed, the Christian Constitutional Society. Its object to be first, the support of the Christian religion, second, the support of the United States. Interesting priorities. Remember when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you, right? Clothing, housing, uh, food. It will fall into place if you'll just put God first. That's true on a personal level, but it's also true on a national level. That's what Psalm 2 is saying. Put God where he belongs. And so Hamilton is saying we need this Christian constitutional society so we can support the Christian religion first. And then the United States second, because the United States hinges upon the success of the Christian religion flourishing here. Now, these are, these are the founders, and I think it's kind of interesting just to take a look into their worldview and see how they looked at Psalm 2 and all of this. John Wingate, the highest glory of the American Revolution, said John Quincy Adams, was this. It connected in one dissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. Let's put God first. Let's have freedom of religion. Let's look at the Christian principles of equality and the purpose of government. And let's create a nation that actually fits with that. And he says that was the glory, the highest glory of the American Revolution. According to John Quincy, was our sixth president. His dad was John Adams, who was our second president. And that's what they said. Samuel Adams, the right to freedom being the gift of God Almighty, the rights of the colonists as Christians may best be understood by reading and carefully studying the institutions of the great lawgiver and the head of the Christian church. So there's uh, Jehovah and Jesus, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. So he's over and over. I mean, we could go on and on with these quotes. They're acknowledging Jehovah and acknowledging Jesus, and they were not ashamed to do it. 
Patrick Henry, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists in general, just spiritual people, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. It wasn't a Christian nation in the sense of we're going to force everybody to be a Christian and if you're not, we're going to execute you or something like that. But it was thoroughly Christian in the sense that what were the principles of the Old and New Testament and how do we make that a a reality in a practical sense in our nation? So Jesus said, you know, we're all equal. There's no Jew, Gentile, or male, female, uh, bond, or slave, you know, uh, uh, th- that separates us. We're all one in Christ. And our declaration says, God created all men equal. The ground's level at the foot of the cross. There's no one above somebody else. You weren't born higher than someone else. We all can come to God through Jesus. We're all equal under the law. These were principles. You know, there's no divine right of kings that you're born just because you were born with a certain last name or or a certain family that you have the right to rule over your neighbors. That's not a Bible principle. So what they were trying to do was just take basic principles about the purpose of government is to protect us and get out of our life. You know, freedom is you living a life, pursuing God's will, and standing before him someday after your 70 years is up. And government's purpose is to protect you while you're doing that. Not to become God. That's why Jesus said, render to Caesar what Caesar's. He has a place, and it's a wonderful, valuable place. Aren't you glad you can call 911? Aren't you glad there's a system set up to deal with evil? But render to Caesar what's his, render to God what's God's, and there is a difference. And they understood there's a line. And when Caesar gets over into God's territory, that's when we say no. We ought to obey God rather than men. And they were just trying to create a nation that said, look, we're going to take those principles and build a nation. And it's because of that that people of other faiths have freedom of religion here. And here's the thing about this, guys. You know, you just shouldn't ever feel threatened by the preaching of Muslims or Mormons or Hindus or whatever it is, as long as we have a chance to speak up to. Because as long as there's freedom of speech, we can debate these things, we can preach, we can let the Lord work in people's hearts. But whenever... Those who have the gospel are silenced. That's when you're in trouble. The truth will prevail, I believe, and uh, the Lord will work as long as Jesus said you shall know the truth. The truth will make you free. Freedom can survive as long as we're preaching truth. But if we ever are silenced or intimidated to not speak up, then it's over. The only hope we have as a country is if those who have the ability to speak the truth will. And we can fight back the lies and the deception, even though, you know, now, now we've got big tech and all these uh, industries and, and such moving in to censor and cancel and all of that. So, you know, it's a challenge, absolutely. 
But the whole thing of freedom hinges on truth. And that's why you cannot be ashamed to speak up. That's the only hope. If we say, well, I'm just gonna, I don't want to make any waves, so I'm just going to be silent and kind of drift off into, into the darkness, then that's the end of freedom. If, if that becomes the mindset of American Christians. So it's because of our faith, Christianity in particular, freedom of conscience. You choose. Let, let everybody preach. But when it boils down to it, uh, let them be able to choose God freely then we have a chance. Samuel Chase said, by our former government, the Christian religion is the established religion. All sects and denominations of Christians are placed on the same equal footing and equally entitled to, protect, uh, to protection in their religious liberty. Jedediah Morse, whose son was Samuel Morse with the Telegraph, said, to the kindly influence of Christianity, we owe that degree of civil freedom which mankind now enjoys. In proportion as the genuine effects of Christianity are diminished in a nation, in any nation, the people of that nation recede from the blessings of genuine freedom and approximate the miseries of complete despotism or tyranny. Now, that's one of the founders. And isn't it amazing they understood how this all worked? The more Christian a nation will be, the more free they will be. The farther they move away from Christianity, the closer do they get to tyranny. And after looking at human history for 6,000 years, that principle was obvious to them. And I think it's just as clear right now. The farther we get from, from God and Jesus and the Word of God, the more totalitarian our government becomes. But these guys already figured that out. John Adams said the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the principles of Christianity. These are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God, and that those principles of liberty are as unalterable as human nature. These are the laws of nature and nature's God. You can reject them and act like they're not there, but it doesn't change the fact. They're there. They're eternal, immutable laws and principles, and a nation is only going to be happy when they will submit to them. Congress, 1854, the great vital and conservative element in our system is the belief of our people in the pure doctrines and divine truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, that was, what, uh, 70 years, you know, after the revolution and all of that, uh, 50 years, roughly, of America going strong. And we're still in Congress saying, you know, that is the great vital element in our system is our belief in Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Noah Webster said the religion which has introduced civil liberty is the religion of Christ and his apostles. This is genuine Christianity. And to this we owe our free constitutions of government. Alexis de Tocqueville was the French man that came to America in the 1830s, traveled to all the states, and then wrote Democracy in America, right? And he said this, the Americans combine the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive the one without the other. You, they can't even separate their Christian faith and the principles of liberty. Herbert Hoover said this, we believe that all men are created equal because they're created in the image of God. 
Our founding fathers did not invent the priceless boon of individual freedom and respect for the dignity of men. That great gift to mankind sprang from the creator and not from governments. Dwight Eisenhower said, without God, there could be no American form of government nor an American way of life. Recognition of the supreme being is the first, the most basic expression of Americanism. Thus, the founding fathers of America saw it, and thus, with God's help, it will continue to be. Over and over. Of course, Eisenhower was a president much later in the 50s, and so uh, still, though, there's this public consciousness in our nation that of course we're built on Bible principles, on Christianity. Of course we acknowledge God. We're one nation under God. We pledge in God we trust. Uh, Eisenhower was the one that uh, got that passed. And you know, uh, the spiritual underpinnings uh, of this nation cannot be denied. That's why we became the freest, most prosperous, enlightened nation on earth, according to Alexis de Tocqueville. And that was only after 50 years of existence. Because of our faith. De Tocqueville was the one that also said, if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. It's, we're not great because of our resources and our constitution and all these things. He said it's because of our faith. So, Eisenhower went on to say, democracy is nothing in the world but a spiritual conviction that each of us is enormously valuable because of a certain standing before our own God. Any organization such as that is can well take the Bible in one hand and the flag in the other and march ahead. And that's one reason, you know, the veterans and those that have gone before us have, have been flag-waving, God-fearing patriots is because for 200 plus years, we've understood that what has made America this lighthouse to the world that's attracted millions of immigrants every year is because of our faith, because of uh, recognizing the creator, which means if there is a creator and we're not the result of an evolutionary explosion of some sort, if there's a creator, every person then has value. And no government leader has the right to lord over you in every area of your life, especially that which pertains to you and God. And that's what made America exceptional. Not that we had exceptional people compared to any other nation. In fact, most of, the, of America was people from all these nations. What made us exceptional was this belief. That there is a creator. Therefore, we're all created by him with equal opportunities to pursue God. And as a result, we, you know, in their conscience, it was no problem to take a Bible in one hand and an American flag in the other hand and march forward. I remember seeing a, one of those promo videos uh, from, from World War II footage, and they were showing Hitler and all of that. And there was one particular scene. It showed a swastika and a line and the Holy Bible. And they were saying, folks, this is what it boils down to. Our way of life, our freedom, our, our religious freedom in particular. But I'll never forget that image. Because that is what it boils down to. Um, 
Application. First of all, we need to stop and appreciate Psalm 2. That's an amazing passage. It was actually quoted by the prophets in the book of Acts. You can find it in one of the sermons there that they were preaching after Pentecost. Psalm 2. And it's just as true, just as relevant right now in 2021. We need to stop and appreciate it. Secondly, we need to appreciate America's history. Don't let Satan steal it from us. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he can, he will absolutely wipe out our history from us. Steal it from us. Convince our kids that somehow those guys were evil. When in fact, it was those Christian principles that created the freest nation on earth and led the way in freeing slaves. I mean, if you talk to them, uh, you'd think that the whole world had gotten rid of slavery, you know, a thousand years ago, and America was just hanging on because we're horrible, racist people. No, the truth is America led the way out of slavery. And it's because of these principles. But boy, Satan is a master deceiver, and he twists it all up, and... And, I, and again, we wouldn't say that everything they did was perfect any more than we could say that everything our church right here does is perfect, right? We're humans. We learn some things the hard way. Uh, we, we do things that we do regret, but uh, our nation was not perfect, but it was founded on these principles that led to freedom. What we need to do right now above all else is point fellow citizens to God. And I would just challenge you tonight, how can you do that? How would you do that? Let me share this one quote, going back to Jedediah Morse. Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present Republican forms of government and all the blessings which flow from them, the prosperity, the comforts, all the stuff we just have grown to take for granted now, all of that must fall with them. The further we get from Christianity in this country, the more of a price we'll pay. The tyrant is hovering around waiting to swoop in and absolutely devour us. And the thing that really stands in the way of the tyrant is people of faith. Now, I, I show that not to discourage it, but just to help you understand that 200 years ago they understood this. We can't forget it now. And I guess the question is, what is our hope? What is our hope? To give the gospel to as many people as we can. Paul marched into, or he wrote the letter to Rome, uh, to the Romans, knowing that Nero was going to be a problem right he ended up losing his head to Nero but I love it in Romans 1 where he says I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes the Jew first and also the Greek I just I want to pray for myself and and we need to pray for each other that no matter how weird crazy wild it gets that we will never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone out there. And as a byproduct, it's our only hope for a free nation.